Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The reason, well, there's two reasons why I wanted to get you on the show, Amy. First of all, is I just find you a very inspiring and interesting person, and you always seem to have lots of very exciting things going on. So I want to prick your brain and find out about you. The other reason is that because my show's like a rock and roll show, a lot of my guests are male, and there's there's so much stuff going on at the moment culturally with attitudes towards men and women, um, and you know, gender politics, sexual identity issues, and a lot of the guests that I get on aren't in any way, shape, or form qualified to really talk about any of it with any authority. So I thought I could get someone like yourself who's had a lot of experience with various kind of areas of psychology and identity and, you know, the human mind. Well, I'm very... uh, share some thoughts. (laughs) I'm uh, thankful that you look at me that way, that I'm an interesting person. I have experience in the rock and roll world, which we can talk about. And then also my education and expertise in whether it's gender identity or sexuality or the Me Too movement or everything going on there. Have you had women on the show before? I've had I've had Laura Jane Grace and Mina on the show. Great. I've had Pauline Black, who's the singer in The Selector. I don't know okay. if you know that band. They're like a kind of 70s ska mm-hmm. punk band. Um, I've had a filmmaker called Alice Lowe, who okay. made a really interesting film. It was like a black kind of pregnancy revenge film is how she described oh, it so nice. it's called prevenge okay and she filmed it well she wrote filmed and starred in the leading role when she was eight months pregnant 
So Wow, I'm going to have to check that out. It's a really cool film. It's really dark, twisted, funny. I'm a horror movie super fan. Then so. you'll love it. Yeah. And I imagine you probably like British comedy. Sometimes. Sometimes. I, <laughs> no offense. None taken. I think you'll enjoy it. I think So yeah, I've had like 56 guests on the show and so maybe four or five. Wow, women, so I'm so. part of a very small group. I'm very flattered. Yeah, and well, I've recorded a couple more out here. I did Nadia from Cold Chamber the oh, other day. Oh, she's my friend. She's great. So that was good to talk yeah. to her. And who else have I had on? Oh, and I'm going to do Kerry Kasem on Friday as Oh, well. okay, great. So great. Yeah. the numbers are increasing, but I feel like it's important with everything that's going on to just get the female perspective mm -hmm. because, I mean, women know more than men about everything There's, anyway. There are so many women <laughs> in the music industry, especially in the rock music industry, that don't really get validated or heard. And I think for a long time, they were almost like these tokens. Like, oh, you have your hot female bass player, but nobody validated that person for being a good bass player. Or, you know, you have your hot chick singer, but it becomes very tokenized and almost... Uh, like a novelty yeah to have like women but but women have like a valid earned place in that industry and i think it's important to give those people voices well so your connection to music first of all were you always into rock was that always like the soundtrack to your youth oh absolutely so yeah. when i was younger you know I, I remember being 13 or 12 or so and getting columbia house i don't know if you had that in the uk i don't it was think like, so this mail order CD company where it's almost like a scam where they said you right. can get 10 CDs for a penny and then every month they send you a CD of their choosing and you have to pay like 20 or $30 for it. So these were all in, you know, the rock magazines, tear out pages. And, you know, when you're a teenager, oh, what a great deal. I'll get these 10 CDs and then not pay ever again or whatever you think you can do. So I remember ordering like Pantera and all these things and just putting them for the first time in my CD player because back then in the early 90s, there was no internet that you could listen to new music on. Um, or even discover new bands, really. Did, like I discovered bands by friends, obviously, but living in suburban Pennsylvania. Is that where you grew up? That's where I grew up. It's pretty much whatever was on MTV. And then you look at the, what I would do, I, was, I would look at the liner notes and whatever bands they thanked, which were typically bands they would tour with, I would just buy their CDs. And then I'd look at their liner notes and buy yeah. their CDs. Cross-reference. Right. I'm like, well, like if Nine Inch Nails is thinking, uh, you know, Skinny Puppy, then maybe Skinny Puppy's really cool. And if this band's thinking this band. So that's really how I discovered music is through these liner notes. Now, I mean, kids have it so easy. There's, there's so much access to music that it becomes overwhelming, I think, now. I think so, too. And uh, the joy of discovery is almost taken out of it. Yeah. If you want to be nostalgic and romantic about yeah. it like i kind of am i was talking to casey about this yesterday saying the same thing like now everything's available it's like huh i don't know what to listen to because it's mm -hmm. all there whereas and before there's so you'd much have... music made so easily which is great for musicians that it costs a lot less that things can be done digitally you can put your stuff on itunes or youtube so quickly um but then for the consumer it's more difficult because there's so many options and you don't know where to put your time and attention and money and money right yeah so um you know, now it's the same thing. I think I see who opens for other bands that I like and I kind of give them a chance. But that's that's what I would do before. So that was really the soundtrack to my youth was early 90s metal, which is still my favorite <laughs> style. So White Zombie, Pantera, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Nine Inch Nails. Mm -hmm. That's all your jams. That, those are my jams, right? That's like still the soundtrack of my life. Love so, it. yeah, it's the good stuff. Yeah. So I always liked music like that. And I would go to concerts by myself. I was kind of a, you know, nerdy outcast. I think I was anyway. And I would go to all these shows, usually alone. And um, Is that because none of your friends were necessarily into the yeah, same music? Or, yeah, not necessarily into the same music, especially a lot of women, young girls. I didn't have a lot of friends that 
liked what I liked. So I'd meet friends at the concerts and a lot of those people I'm still friends with now. Um, and then I did the street team stuff, which was popular before the internet. They would send you boxes of stickers or cassette tapes. I actually used to hand out um, Amen and all these cassette tapes of these bands that I know now personally. Um, but it got me into the concerts for free, which is a big deal when you're 16, 17 years old. Huge deal, yeah. And you get all this free swag. So it was very cool at the time. And then I ran my college radio station. Oh, and I cool. turned it into a metal format. So I did that when I was like 18, 19. Where was college? Where did um, you go to college? Pennsylvania. It was a junior college, but you know, I thought it was a really big deal. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, <laughs> I think things like that set the seed, don't they, yeah. for later on. It gets the cogs turning. It gets and I would interview bands. I would come with my tape recorder and interview bands. And it, you know, opened doors for me to be able to meet people that I looked up to and um, Who and was then, your first interview with? Do you remember? I don't remember my first, but a lot of the bands were bands I didn't even like as much, but I remember interviewing uh, like Six Feet Under and stuff that was even heavier than what I liked the most. And just realizing that everybody seemed super nice and cool and that was great. Guar. Yeah. Guar. Yeah. Really? The um, main dude, was it Dave Brocky? Was that his name? What's the main um, singer? I interviewed Slymenster Hyman. Amazing. Yeah. Who was also flirting with me at the time. And I was like 18. And I, did, I was like, I don't know. How, to, how do I handle this right now? Um, but it was, it was really a, a good experience. And then after that, when I moved to LA, and the, what brought you out here? I came out here for a relationship. I was married to a musician. Right. Um, back when I was... Who you met back east? Or? Met back east and I was like 18 and we were together until I was in my mid to late 20s. So together about eight years. So I moved out here and that was my social circle then. So then all of a sudden, because he was in a new metal band, the whole group of people I knew out here were all new metal bands and their girlfriends or, you know, that crowd. Um, and then I did modeling on the side, putting myself through school and I was like booth babe at nam for every guitar company you can think of and i did a bunch of music videos it was you know rob zombie's music video so which I got one to, uh foxy foxy there you go i'll have <laughs> to check it out and see you in it That's uh chimera funny. you know yeah, yeah. so I, I did some really cool videos and had fun with that but so my involvement over time has been from fan to fan with like a little bit of a purpose to college radio uh management to then you know kind of on the sexier girl side um, and now in my life, like I'm not, there's really no role for me anymore with it, which is for the first time in the last few years. Okay. I'm not going to work the booth babe jobs anymore. I have my own career. So it's been interesting just being a fan again and kind of cycling back to that role. And have you found that you're still connected to music that's coming out now, or is it more you're reverting just back to enjoying listening to the bands that you grew up on? I want to like new music more, but I end up reverting a lot. It's hard um, not to, isn't it? If you know you're going to love every song on said album by such and such. Especially when those musicians are still touring and still entertaining and, and together. Like Rob Zombie, even though the music that he's making that's new music is not as heavy, it's still really good. And live, he puts on a great show. So yeah. you're not disappointed at all. Nine Inch Nails, great shows. Um, Trent Reznor doing soundtracks now. I mean, it's like his... He's like a grown-up goth, like his yeah. mature grown-up uh, version of his music. I think um, even the latest Manson album was so like grown-up and interesting. Are you not a fan? No. No. I see you look at no comment. We'll that, talk that, about no, that when we're done the interview. That no comment is comment enough, <laughs> Amy. Um, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago. This is an interesting topic of conversation for me, and you can never really say too much, I don't think, as a man. But I'd love to know your perspective. Mm. A lot of the feminists that I meet, or people who claim to be feminists, mm. will often shame other girls for using their body, you know, to make money. Mm -hmm. And they'll say that, you know, you're holding feminism back. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? 
Well, there's so many different schools of thought with feminism. Even the word ends up being very explosive for a lot of people uh, because they have such strong ties to what the word means. So feminist, by definition, is somebody who wants equal rights for men and women. And I could assume that most people want that. You want that, so that would technically make you a feminist. Um, But people are scared to use that word. There's different waves of feminism that have come across with different perspectives. So the second wave of feminism was more conservative. Women didn't want to exploit their bodies. It was about burning your bra and letting your armpit hair grow. What era are we talking here? That's more, I think, in the 80s, 70s, 80s. In the 90s, when culture was very rebellious remember in the 90s whether it was the metal or the riot girl music that was coming out politics culture even you could say pop like the spice girls everything was was, pretty was in your face louder political liberal um and the the feminism that came out at that time was the third wave of feminism which was really about women should do what they want to do with their own bodies with their own choice and if that means you want to burn your bra and grow your armpit hair or if that means you want to be a sex worker and walk around in your you know, with your cleavage showing, then equally those lifestyles are valid and you should have the right to do those things. So coming from that perspective, which is a belief that I hold, if you want to do it, do it. I think it is important to be mindful of the cultural effect your behavior could have, but ultimately it's your decision and equal rights means doing what you want because you want to do them. Um, So I feel like people using their sexuality to their advantage, as long as it's not harming other people, is totally fine. Um, When you look at musicians and bands, there are bands that do and do not use that sexual appeal. Like the Butcher Babies started with electrical tape on their nipples. I mean, they're very hot, but they're also good musicians and they, you know, carry their own on these festivals that are very male driven. So I think that their sex appeal is, yes, part of their total package, but they also have talent that they can then bring with that. And that's a choice. Whereas like Otep, you know, is not putting electrical tape on her nipples, uh, but she's equally valid in what she does. And both are just personal choices. So I definitely support women that want to be sexy and sexual if that's part of what they want. I think it's really interesting. Say if you're in like, a strip club not that i frequent them regularly <laughs> but for me i'm kind of looking more at the guy that's paying all this money to stare at the girl as the one who's being exploited do you know what i mean men are completely exploited in the sex industry even if you think about porn we think about oh women are so exploited exploited in porn but when you think about how men are portrayed a lot of times you just see their genitals you don't see them as a full man so it's yeah. like oh you're just a you're just a dick like that's yeah. all you are and so that puts pressure on men to look certain ways, behave in certain ways. In a strip club, yeah, men are totally being taken advantage of because the the strip club is about the hustle. Exactly. It's not about just seeing that naked body on stage or just dancing. That's, you know, when there's burlesque shows or peep shows or things like that. The strip show is an advertisement or the, the at a strip club for the lap dance, which is where the club and the dancer make the primary amount of money. So it's, here's, here are my goods. Okay, do you want to pay me more money to spend three minutes in closer proximity to me and pay me more? Um, and so they're on the hustle. They're on the prowl for that. So the man is there as kind of like, you know, that's their bait. They want to. Yeah. So. And women make so much money so easily in those clubs on right. a Friday and Saturday night, don't they? Uh, can, right. They can. I mean, that, that industry has changed as well. Now, as opposed to years ago, women have to pay house fees and pay out all the people, sometimes have to have licenses. So now compared to maybe 10 years ago, the amount of money that the average stripper makes is actually quite a bit less, but it is on their own schedule and it is their own choice, but and not it, all. Is it a lot safer now? 
because um, of those rules and things that are in place, it, would you say? Or? It's not it's not safer because of those fees they have to pay. Is it safer than illegal sex work? Yeah, probably. It, and it is a type of sex work, yeah. but it's choice. So not all strippers are putting themselves through school, although some are. Not all strippers are you know, uh, prostituting or doing other things that could be a stigma. Some are. Um, some wish they weren't doing it. Some are very happy that they're doing it. So there's not a rule about that. So it's important not to look at them as all strippers are doing this because they want to, because they believe in freedom of choice or all strippers are, you know, going down some dark path and they're making bad decisions. It's, it's not an easy answer like that, but it is a choice. So whatever the reason that they're choosing to do this, it's important to respect anyone's decision for whatever choices they feel work for them. I think the key thing there is it's not black and white, and that mm -hmm. applies to kind of everything that's going on. Everything. everything, absolutely. I think we need to look at everything with curiosity. Like, oh, I wonder what's what's really going on there. Everything should be with curiosity um, and respecting other people's choices if it's a consensual choice that doesn't harm others. What do you think about the, if we could break it down and get the the psychoanalytical perspective maybe, or the, I don't know, socio-cultural mm -hmm perspective of the whole me too movement why that finally now came to break through in the way that it has what mm -hmm. it's achieved mm -hmm. the positives perhaps on the flip side mm -hmm. the negatives if there are any mm -hmm. i know that's a huge <laughs> we could go on area for, for you to hours get into. and hours but and you have to um, excuse my ignorant sort of uh language and, and questioning because it's no i think that's a very valid question like why now why did it turn out the way it did how has this affected things? And I think there are a lot of positives. People are listening to women more. Women are getting fairer wages, especially in the entertainment industry. We're seeing a lot more of this in entertainment. Um, people are more hypersensitive to treatment of women and why things are happening the way they're happening. But on the other side, um, I think that men are scared. I think people might be more hesitant to be themselves or do their jobs the way they always have done them. Um, but for that reason, I think we should all be curious. Like, for example, today I read in the, I read the news, the paper newspaper. I like real paper. I don't do everything on my phone. I have a real calendar. Right. So I was just at a diner reading the paper and I noticed that there was a gynecologist that had a, his license suspended because he was taking medical photos. They weren't for personal or sexual use. Um, and that some women felt uncomfortable with things he said, like, you have wonderful skin or your skin is beautiful in a non-sexual way. Now, when I see the headline for this, gynecologist suspended over possible harassment. Oh, that sounds terrible. A person harassing a woman should be suspended. But when you read the fine detailed, actually the facts that were presented in this article, and this is all I know is from what was in this article, is that this person was probably doing their job. If I had a doctor that told me I had great skin in a non-sexual way, I think that's an objective observation. But because of this movement, I don't think that if it wasn't at this time that this doctor would have been suspended. So I think that some of it goes very far and we have to be very cautious on what we, what assumptions we allow ourselves to make based on limited information that we have about people. And so much of the responsibility of that is within the hands of the press, isn't it? Absolutely. And so much of the irresponsible. People like you. No, <laughs> yeah, right. It starts with you. But it's true. They, it's irresponsible journalism. Yeah. And no matter what journalism you're presented with or what information you're presented with, it's our responsibility as free thinking individuals to take that information and say, is this a re reliable source? Is this bias? Is this something that's accurate? Does this actually violate somebody? 
because there's so much misinformation out there and persuasive journalism or persuasive information in the news. Everything's written to make you think or feel something, whether it's intentional as a pers- persuasive article or presentation, or maybe it's an unconscious bias somebody has because we all have them. So any information we're taking in has been filtered through somebody writing it, somebody presenting it, and we just have to be aware and and take responsibility for our own per- perceptions and reactions. Common sense. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, I feel it's like really called common I feel sense. like common sense is just dying though in today's world. And mm-hmm. I, I talk a lot about it on my show, and I always sound like the kind of grumpy old man, but. Mm-hmm. Just the internet and the way the internet works is an article will get shared and the headline will be often all people read. And as mm-hmm. you say, you see that headline and it's quite a provocative headline. Mm-hmm. The language is quite loaded. Mm-hmm. And you just go, oh my God, that's awful. That person's done this. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to watch any of his films ever again. He is mm-hmm. dead to me. Mm-hmm. Next. And it's almost like a, um, a witch hunt, for lack of a better word. Right. It, you- it has created some of that. But then on the other side, more women are being heard for things that actually are happening. So even though there's like some progress and that's great on the other hand i think it's caused people to do this kind of witch hunt behavior obviously if there are situations where people are underage or they're not consenting it's a very clear non-consent if there's violations rape that's not even a question yeah of course but there's a lot in a gray area and as a sex therapist um as a therapist in general i hear a lot of gray area and the gray area challenges us more because it challenges us to look at ourselves look at our own behavior and look a little deeper into things that maybe aren't an easy answer. So growing up, were you always interested in the human mind? Yes, I was always interested in how the human mind affected human behavior. So before I went to school and to college, I was reading true crime. And in my perfect scenario... You were a proper little goth kid, weren't you? Oh, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) I uh, I think I posted an Instagram picture I found of me the other day. It's like I wore fishnet long sleeve shirts with metal band t-shirts. Amazing. Ripped up fishnets, docks, the whole thing. (laughs) Uh, But in my mind, I wanted to be Charles Manson's therapist. You know, if I could have that job, that would be perfect. Uh, But to be in that position, not only would I have to get not only the PhD in psychology, a law degree, I would have to be the number one in what I did to be a forensic psychologist that did expert testimonies with the highest profile crimes. The time and money and likelihood of that happening is slim to none. And working in criminology or forensics not being the top of the top, you mostly would work with a lot of gang related crimes or in jail facilities. And that's not necessarily what I wanted. So I thought, okay, what else can I do that would be fulfilling and really interesting so I went in the direction of human sexuality and feminism and women's studies as opposed to uh, criminal deviance. <laughs> right. And so when you were studying at university, obviously a lot of these sort of areas of discourse which are now coming to light perhaps weren't as widely covered and known about and explored. Mm-hmm. So did you feel like you were almost front line in a exploration of this kind of undiscovered, unexplored Sometimes. territory I mean, in, of the mind? In, in college, or is there a lot of... Like a lot of it's self self study because in undergrad having a bachelor's in psychology you're really learning about the basic one on ones you know uh, Pavlov's dog behavioralism <laughs> right uh, Freud n- nothing that you would even apply as a therapist so my master's program really taught me that but it was a clinically driven program so while we did have gender studies and some sexuality education it was very minor it was more about how to deal with clients the legal and ethical concerns about being a therapist. Um, how to manage a session with a client. So it was, you know, three years of that type of study as opposed to cutting edge information. Um, there should be more of that, but there's it's not really required. In fact, a lot of people don't know that 
MFTs, which is marriage and family therapist, uh, MSWs, which is a, a master's in social work. So most therapists you would see have these two licenses. You might also see a psychologist, which is licensed on their doctoral degree. The master's level therapists that are the majority of therapists out there have one unit required of education in human sexuality. A normal class is three units. So it's pretty much like a weekend course and not much information can be taught then. Um, a psychologist doesn't have any required, so it would have to be elective that they would choose in sexuality education. So most therapists that a person will go to for a marriage problem, let's say some they're having a, a couple's having an issue, they don't have enough sex, but nothing that's on the fringe at all. Maybe their sex drives are different and the woman feels neglected, guy doesn't want to have sex with her as very much. Um, the person they would go see as a therapist might have almost zero education about sexuality and might be very uncomfortable talking about it which is a problem in this field for what's required. So sexuality education, gender identity information, any new changes in cultural things, they're just not often taught as much as they could be. And most of that information has to be taught through self-study, personal drive, going to take your own courses outside of school, which is what I've done a lot of. And obviously you have to be quite interested in that area to you pursue want that to avenue. be interested there. Otherwise you're probably not going to do right, that. Right, right. Yeah. So a lot of that I've done on my own with, you know, I sought out a doctoral degree that was based only in human sexuality. There's very few of those in the whole country. Um, being involved in communities of sex therapists and people that are sex positive therapists, which means that you view sexuality as a positive thing as long as it doesn't harm others. Kooks and all. Right, kooks yep. and all, whatever those might yep. be. Um, in fact, in my practice, I work a lot with people that are involved in certain alternative lifestyles. And maybe that's not why they're coming to therapy, but they don't want me to focus on that. It's not like your depression is because you're a swinger. No, like you do this thing and that works for you and that's fine. But secondly, or also, you suffer from depression. So let's talk about that. Um, a lot of therapists aren't capable of doing that because they may not have the education to what that means in that lifestyle or that that not, might not be related to the person's depression. Is the profession itself still quite conservative? Oh, yes. Yeah, it is. Um, there's certain areas where it's less conservative, like San Francisco or you'd think LA would be less uh, conservative, but it is a more conservative field. The average therapist per the studies that are done are typically saying that most therapists, like the average therapist is, a, I think, a woman in her 50s. So it's not a young field. I'm definitely one of the younger. I'll be 37 next week. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> but I'm one of the younger people I know in my field, for sure. It's so. interesting because I know people, I know female friends in the UK and in Australia, in fact, mm -hmm. who are aware of you and are big fans of oh, your work so cool. and stuff. And mm -hmm. you obviously must kind of be, in a way, a pioneer for it, for making mm -hmm. it more accessible. Yeah. Also, a lot of therapists aren't into being in the media. Like, that's just not their drive. So they might have really great opinions or have really strong beliefs that could benefit other people to hear, but they might not be driven to go on podcasts or write articles or be on documentaries. It's just not their focus. But prior to being a therapist, I did a lot of media work and whether it was like modeling or acting or the things I did as I was in school. So I'm very comfortable speaking in, in front of a camera. Most therapists don't do that. So being that I have that comfort, I think it's important for me to be able to have a platform where I can talk about these things that need to have experts out there being heard. Why do, why do you think that the human sexuality is such a taboo and such an area of, I don't know, almost like, like people seem to kind of almost freeze up when you talk about it, don't they? It's like one of the, if you look at the list of subjects that are perhaps difficult to talk mm -hmm. about, so we've got racism and mm -hmm. race, and then we've got 
why do you think the human sexuality is such a like <laughs> i don't know a, a dark area for so many people they just don't want to go especially there especially in the u.s i don't know if you've noticed in my opinion i think in the uk it's a little less taboo than it would be to talk about here and even in a big city like la that seems so liberal it's still pretty uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about it um i think a lot of it in the u.s goes back to even having puritan roots like our our country was really founded on a very conservative place um on top of that somehow sexuality between religion and politics and everything else has become this thing that people don't talk about they won't talk about and it's very hush hush um i would like that to change i'd like people to be more open about that um but it but it is just a fact that that that's occurred it's interesting to me. So the, the kind of day-to-day work for you, do you deal with children and adults? My license is marriage and family therapist, which is pretty mi- misleading. It makes it sound like I work with a lot of marriages and families, but actually I don't. I work mostly that with- That is misleading. Yeah, it's very misleading. <laughs> but it's it's a, it's the, the license title. Um, so any therapist you see would be marriage and family therapist or social worker. And it's typically, we all do very similar things in private practice. I work a lot with individuals, some couples- um, the couples I see may or may not be married. Um, I work, but, but come to you together? But come together or maybe separately, depending on the situation. Right. Um, also in like long-term relationships, not necessarily. Right, they may not be legally married. Maybe Got they're it. domestic partners or live-in partners, or yep. maybe they're polyamorous and they're secondary partners. So it may not always be a, what you would think of as a traditional couple or married couple. Um, I don't work with any kids. I don't really want to. It's not my area. Um, I work mostly with young adults anywhere from early 20s, typically to 40s. I have clients that have gone all the way up to 80 years old. Um, But most of my clients are typically younger adults, a lot of individuals with some type of range of sexuality or gender expression. That might be transgender. That might be... um, on the LGBTQ spectrum um, at some point in time and they just want somebody that gets it. Maybe they want to be able to talk about sexuality and were not comfortable before. I had a client the other day that said, you know, I was always so scared to talk about sex with people, but you talk about it like it's the weather. Like it just doesn't hold any fear at all. I'm like, well, that's good. That's We should be able to talk about sexuality. Like it's just another fact. It's important to be able to look at these things and not be so terrified of a conversation. So, so mostly, yeah, adults and couples. And do you deal with people who suffer from like addiction problems? <laughs> I'm not an addiction specialist, so if addiction behaviors are very severe, I might refer them to somebody else. But many of my clients have had addiction issues in the past or have co-occurring disorders. So a lot of times when there's addiction present, there might be another type of psychological problem or another type of presenting issue because addiction goes into everything. Yeah. So if- Do you find that addiction is like a trait? It doesn't matter what you're addicted to, the root of it is often the same? It often comes down to compulsive behaviors. So if you have a compulsive Uh, aspect of your personality that might play out with sexuality gambling food relationships drugs and alcohol um what's the strangest addiction you've ever come across um you know i deal with so many things that the word strange isn't even really my vocabulary anymore um yeah nothing i mean working with people with sexuality you hear of compulsions that are you know or fetishes that are pretty interesting um but nothing like absolutely strange as far as addictions. So they so. don't get addicted to say cars. No, uh, no. Well, I mean, somebody could buy a lot of cars yeah, and that would yeah. financially be harmful to them. 
Um, <laughs> but no, no, nothing, nothing like that. Yeah, mostly drugs and alcohol, which are pretty common drug and alcohol issues or sex addiction, which I don't label as sex addiction. A lot of times that can become very stigmatizing. So people who have compulsive behaviors related to sexuality, maybe they get sex workers a lot and that's something they don't want to do or maybe have shame about. Or I work with sex workers as well. I have a lot of clients that have done that in the past or do that currently. A little bit with food addiction. Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you find it hard to separate your work and your personal life and do you take stuff home with you on an emotional um, level or are I you mean, quite good you, at you have to learn to and does that take a to, while that process i think i think as a therapist sometimes people have it and sometimes they don't naturally that they can keep that separate um of course there's a few situations if my client brought something exceptionally heavy into the room or something wonderful happens like for example last week i had a day where four of my clients i had in a row all had magnificent life experiences whether it was getting a great job or entering into a positive relationship. And it's almost like when you hear friends or family say, I just did this really great thing. So you feel good for them. So I had all this really positive stuff and I went home and I thought, oh my God, I just had this really great day. All my clients today have done these big, wonderful things for themselves and what progress, that's great. So I did bring that home a little bit. It was in my mind. And if I have a client who's doing something maybe harmful or somebody I'm worried about, of course I might think about that, but I'm not gonna stay up all night, you know? It's not going to affect me the way it might affect others that haven't been trained or prepared for this field. So I think that I have the natural ability to do that a little bit more than maybe, let's say, the average person. But it's also something you learn while you're going through your education process, how to how to be able to do that effectively. Because if I was reasonably affected by every client that came in, I'd then be a mess. You need to go see your own therapist. <laughs> well, I do. I, a therapist should well. all see their own therapist. Oh, really? Is that... Right. That's um, when you're in school. Is you that actually... a commonly held belief? Amongst... Yes, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'd be concerned if a therapist didn't have a therapist, you know, to process the things that they hear and also somebody to check in with, whether it's professionally or ethically, legally. So you should either have your own therapist or have like a consultation person you go to 
to keep yourself checks and balances. So there's always a therapist behind the therapist. Yeah, behind no, my the therapist, therapist has a therapist and the they therapist. have a therapist, yeah. And it's never ending. Mm-hmm. Um, could we talk, and it's fine if you don't want to, you mentioned mm-hmm. to me a moment ago, this was uh, before you got sober referring mm-hmm. to a night yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a reason as to why you gave up yeah. alcohol? Was it I wasn't to focus on work or was it? I, yeah, it, I wasn't an alcoholic, but there were definitely times where I drank more in quantity and have definitely had hangovers and put my foot in my mouth, things like that. But I actually had an illness that I was born with and I was adopted. So I didn't know until I was about 30 that I had an illness that caused like a degenerative issue in my body. And when I went to my doctor, they said, yeah, if you drink like at all, you you could like just kill yourself. So I had to take care of that part of my life for a while, which caused I had to be on medication for about a year. If I hadn't been diagnosed and treated, I would have died. So having a life scare that was something that was something I was born with that I didn't know about that affected my body so physically. And that was, I found out actually because I was drinking like a drink an hour and my body stopped processing the alcohol effectively and I fell and hurt myself. So at that point I had to quit. And because I'm cured now and I'm, you know, went through medical treatment, it was an extremely traumatic experience. At this point, my, after going through that, I noticed that my friends changed when I stopped going and drinking, even just going to have a drink and catching up. Um, didn't have hangovers anymore. I could think clearly all the time. Uh, I you say your friends changed in my like a positive group, way. Right. My friend group changed because I no longer wanted to go out to, the, to meet them at a dive bar or hang out later after a show for a few hours drinking. I would go eat or go home. So the type of people that wanted to hang out with me more and the type of people that wanted to hang out with me less really changed for the positive. So instead, I would go catch up with people on hikes or go for coffee during the day. And just those changes made a big impact on the type of people that were around my life. So once I saw that within that year, I thought, you know what? I think I'm just going to leave that in my past because I could drink now and I'm healthy now. But it's really been a positive change not to have that in my life. So I never ended up being like an alcoholic before. However, I did have experiences that I'm glad I don't have now. So never have to worry about hangovers or things like that. And it's made a big difference. When was your last drink? I think almost six years ago. Six. Wow. I find I give up alcohol for like a couple of months at a time every Mm -hmm. year. And I find once you get past a month, you do achieve this clarity and this clearness Mm -hmm. and this drive Mm -hmm. that isn't present, even if you just have a couple of drinks in the week. Like it totally shifts your... You're clear headed, right? And what alcohol does too when you get older... You know, it causes depression when you're hungover. It slows you down. It changes the way you see things. So I don't like putting very much in my body at all that changes anything. I don't like taking Tylenol when I have a headache. So, I mean, I'm extra uh, cautious. Got to be present. Did you drink coffee? That's my only drug. That's your vice. Yeah. In fact, I've been trying to pull back from that. I'm down to one one cup a day right now. So, yeah. I'm going to ask you another personal question if you don't mind, Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you brought it up. So I presume you'll be comfortable talking about mm-hmm. it. Do you know who your biological parents are? Yeah, I found my biological mom when I was 18 and met her, which was interesting because she doesn't look like anything like me at all. And I found my biological father when I was in my late 20s. And I haven't met him in person, but we keep in touch like on Facebook. And it was interesting because I think when you're adopted, you grew up wondering or fantasizing about who these people could be. And then when you find them, you realize typically, I'm really glad I was adopted. But I have like a friendly-ish relationship with, with them at this point. What's interesting, though, is I have a biological brother. And in Pennsylvania, there aren't like, especially where I'm from, it's more conservative. It's more people are very Republican. And 
uh, very Christian. So being into the things I was into as a teenager, I was really an outcast. There weren't very many people that liked the things I liked. Very few people. My biological half-brother has almost all of the exact same interests. He's really into metal. He loves horror movies. He's pretty dark. Um, and he's a year older than me. So before meeting my biological parents, I always thought that nurture or environmental factors were the most influential things on people, uh, even though I know there's a balance there. But I thought that was much more important. And now after meeting him and finding my biological parents and seeing their personalities, I have a much different perspective on how much um, nature versus nurture, and that the biological impact of your personality and how you see the world is a lot more significant than I had previously thought, for myself especially. That's fascinating. Yeah. I've always wondered that because I always think I'm so different to my parents, but mm -hmm. then if I'll end up in a long-term relationship and the partner gets to know my parents, they'll always point out, like, you're basically just half of each of them. Mm -hmm. Well, there are behavioral models. So when you grow up with certain parents this is your model for it. This is how a woman behaves. This is how a man behaves. Most of your time is around, or will be around these people. So not only biologically, but just by what you're influenced by, what you see. You're taking in as a child these messages that your parents give you that this is how people act. This is how a man and a woman act together. So you have these messages, these behavioral models that even if you're not consciously writing down, a woman should be this way, like my mom. Um, that's what tends to happen. And then as we become teenagers, we suppress these ideas and then our peers or our friends become more important. But the influence our parents have had from age zero to 12 or 13 or 14 is monumental. So we end up becoming a lot like our parents, especially then you start noticing these things in your 20s and 30s. Like, wow, I'm really like my mom or I'm really like my dad in this way because these were our models of behavior. So it's pretty, it's pretty common sense. What did your adoptive parents do? Well, are they in the medical profession? No, not at all. No? No. Um, when, I, when I was adopted, they gave my parents these papers that gave limited information without identifying who these people were. And it said my, my biological mother was a carnival ride operator and that my biological father was a criminal, which is like kind of true on both ends. So at first I'm like, oh my gosh, I, my mom was a carny. That's actually really <laughs> awesome. But she works, she worked, did that I think in um, like when she was in high school. A summer job. Yeah, like a yeah, summer yeah. job at a local fair or yeah. something like that. So I was like, oh, that's not that cool. Um, and then she works in an office now. What's interesting about her, as I said, I come from a very conservative place, especially people older aren't listening to metal and rock. So the first day I met my biological mom, I'm 18. We go to meet at a diner or something like that. And I said, well, tell me about yourself. What kind of music do you like? What's your favorite movie? You know, I want to know who you are. She goes, well, my favorite music group is Suicidal Tendencies. And my favorite movie is Pink Flamingo by John Waters. And I'm like, ah, I give up. We are obviously of the same breed. Like, Were so, you nervous going into that meeting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, your whole life weighs on yeah, what yeah. this person could be. Of course. But then she told me she likes Suicidal Tendencies and John Waters. And I'm like, okay. I feel much better now. And then your dad, you met much later on. Was I that met, a conscious choice or was that because of no, the legal? They, they were never in a relationship. And then my biological father was in prison. But my best friend back home is a social worker and at the time worked for child support. And she said, look, I think I could find him if he's currently incarcerated and he has a child support order against him. At some point in time, I could probably figure out who he is. So within an hour of her getting to work that next day, she's like, I found him. I'm like, what? Um, so hustler. because he was currently incarcerated, I was able to find him. So she sent me his mugshot. And I don't know if you, do you know who Tom Savini is? Yeah, of course. Okay, he looks the exactly. The Mexican yes. looking guy that's in the Rodri Robert Rodriguez films. Could be a clone. 
Yeah. Of, so, right. of course, I'm a horror movie nerd. I'm like, oh, my God, my birth dad looks like Tom Savini <laughs> and a little Dean Carr-esque, too. Like, right, kind of a okay. mix between the two of them. And um, I was like, this is interesting because you look like somebody I would hang out with. Like, you know, so I thought that was cool. And we wrote letters back and forth. And what's interesting about him, he was in and out of jail, kind of like, you know, you hear, I don't know, you know, but Charles Manson was always institutionalized, in and out of jail, never really functioned well in the in outside world. And so he became more comfortable with the way the institution environment was. And that's how this guy was. So in and out of jail, mostly like for theft, drugs, just back in the system, back in the system. Nobody liked him. Every relationship, every kid he had, everyone blacklisted him and he had no hope. So we start writing back and forth and he knows that I'm in school and that I was, this is maybe seven, eight years ago, I was in my master's program and that I'm a functional person. And he was motivated then to be held accountable to someone. He wanted someone to, to know that he's working at him, on himself. Gets out of jail. He's been out of jail since then, since that year. He got a job. He has his own place to live. He started a painting business. And because I'm a crazy cat person, he got himself a black cat. And uh, he's doing well. So even though we've never met in person, we write back and forth. And he's actually a pretty functional guy. Well, an also inspiring his face story. tattoos, which is not normal in Pennsylvania either. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But did, yeah, it's it's really cool. Yeah. And lovely. That's a really touching story. Mm -hmm. did, yeah. has, has that also fed into and inspired your professional drive to learn I think so too. more Even, about these patterns? and but These patterns of behavior, how I, I look at attachment a lot too, how people's attachment to their parents affects their relationships as they age, um, being adopted as much as I rejected the idea that that affected how I viewed relationships for a long time, it absolutely has. And I see that with clients and friends of mine that are adopted or maybe had parents leave the picture early in life. So that influences how I work with people clinically and how I see the world, but also just how I see these people like my biological father, how somebody that has been institutionalized or in the system or making really poor unhealthy choices for a long time can change. So there's a plasticity to personality and behavior you can make changes if you are driven or hopeful enough that's not to say every person that's a total mess is going to turn around at some point I think we always have these hopes that people are going to change uh, but if people are driven enough and they have enough hope and reason for change there could be change so I think having that hope by seeing that in my personal life definitely helps how I view uh, clients or people around me for sure here's another question um, you're feeding me all sorts of questions with these <laughs> anecdotes. I love it. So what would be your take on an accusation on someone from the past, say, 15 years, 20 mm -hmm. years prior? Because there seems to have been a lot of that with yeah. this with this current move. And I guess people who made mistakes in the past, you would hope, would have learned from those mm -hmm. and changed and evolved. And That's a really sticky question because, or debate, because did um, you see what happened with Twiggy? Yes. Yes. That's like classic case in point, I think. Now, like yeah, I mean, we weren't there. We don't know what's happened. There's no documentation of what's occurred. Um, there's a reason there's a statute of limitations in legal cases. Uh, you know, I'm not a legal expert. I'm not going to go into all of that. Um, but I think when a certain amount of time has passed, you have to question what's the motive of somebody bringing it up now? Obviously, when people have had trauma, they might not be able to speak up right away. And we do have to look at that as far as victims and victim mentality and trauma. However, we also have a responsibility to hold people accountable if they do things that are harmful and dangerous. And we have a responsibility to ourselves to do that as well. Um, in that case, to my knowledge, there's no legal action that was taken, right? 
as far as we know, no. in, in this particular case. Yeah. Um, and because of that, you know, I as a human being am very cautious on how I mentally might persecute or judge somebody because in this case here, there's no legal action, not a lot of witnesses. It was before cell phones could take videos and people had screenshots of everything. So all we know is this one person saying something against this other person. Of from course, many, many years from ago. From many, many years yeah. ago when there's been reports on both sides of both parties, maybe we're using both parties. We're using a lot of drugs. So you don't really know what's real. You don't know what's perception. You don't know what's skewed or what reasons people are coming up with information now. Yes, the Me Too movement has really reinforced believe women. However, I think even that can be misleading because women are people and people have different reasons or motives for speaking up at different times. It may not always be genuine. I hope it is. You know, I hope people are honest and they do things for the right reason, but that's not always the case. So in situations like that, I think it's important to be very cautious of what we believe and what we look into. I, When I read about that, I thought it was unfortunate that he was terminated from his position in the music group that he was in. Again, I don't, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know what's gone on there or what the reasons for firing that person really might have been. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have different ideas of the variations of that situation i'm actually surprised there aren't more from being someone that was around a lot of bands when i was younger and really seeing a lot of things that happened in a time period where i think it was a little wilder i'm surprised more things haven't come up i'm like oh here we go the door is now opening well there's some in anthony kiedis's book which is obviously published and it's a best-selling mm -hmm. book he talks about sleeping with a 13 year old Oh my God. Um, okay. Just, I haven't read his book. <laughs> just in the book. And he, yeah. he's an adult. He's yeah. not talking about it as a kid as well. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, whoa, that's in a book. That's a bestseller. Or even if you think <laughs> about like all the 60s musicians that were very open with dating 14 and 15 from year old girls. From 50s, from Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, right. all of those guys mm -hmm. through to the Stones, Led Zeppelin. They were all pretty I mean, open about this. And this is in every book. So it's like this, this stuff has been going on forever. If it's underage people, even if a certain amount of time has passed, I think that's something that should be brought up for yeah. sure. Um, if it's two consenting adults, that's two consenting adults, period. Um, and I think that we need to also, and this is something I talk to women about, be responsible for our own actions and behaviors and speak up when something's not right or learn how to exit situations. There is a fact that when people have trauma, they go into shock and they feel like they can't speak up for sure. Um but I do think it's important for us to be aware of that and try to teach women how, or people, not just women, people, how to articulate themselves when they're in these situations where they feel are risky or scary for them. Um, what are the other situations with musicians? What else has come up lately? The Twiggy one, I know know about that. Musician-wise. I mean, well, there's, there's a, a musician back home. Um, I won't say his name. Um, but there's a musician back home who's in a punk band in the UK. People who listen to this show mm -hmm. in the UK will probably know who I'm talking about. Okay. He's a friend of mine. And he has been accused of basically just being like a shit. Like, he hasn't been accused of anything illegal. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been accused of any sort of, like, rape or sexual misconduct. He's okay. basically been accused of just being, like, a lying, cheating bastard. And because of that, a lot of people, mainly females, but a lot of just mm -hmm. guys and girls are, like, trying to boycott bills that they're on mm -hmm. will like pick at him at shows and you just like shock horror guy and band turns mm -hmm. out to be a oh, lying wow. cheating right and still that's not good however <laughs> no, i can tell good, you from being married not... to a musician and living i lived in a bus like i can say that was part of i lived in a bus for part of my life and you know that was a part of my my experience um i would say most of the men that 
I observed on these big festivals that I was on tour with in my early 20s, most of them were cheating, which put me in a terrible position because I was usually the only girl on the road where I couldn't tell their partners and then I had to be around them. But if I spoke up and said, hey, I saw this guy with this cheating on you, then it would affect my relationship. So I was put in a really uncomfortable position that I had a lot of negative experiences with. And I can tell you, I can't tell you all the people I saw cheat because there were so many of them. I can tell you who I didn't, who didn't cheat. And with I remember to that day, um, <laughs> Des, <laughs> who I still know, and I will never forget like him not being that kind of person when I was young and before I was friends with him and his wife, where, where I am now, um, seeing people like that model different behavior. They stuck out so much because they were better and they were making better decisions. So uh, a guy in a band or even like a, an artist type that's living a bohemian lifestyle, somebody that's on the road, not stuck with a nine to five type thing where they have a lot of freedom, maybe have dis uh, disposable money and don't have a lot of things holding them accountable. You're saying people like that are more likely to maybe be um, more sexually open or cheat, do things that are maybe more deceiving. That's not a surprise at all. Not at all. So I think that there's a difference between people being kind of shitty or gross or cheating, which isn't good versus sexual assault. There is a huge difference there. It's not even in the same realm. Yeah. So we have to be cautious on treating people like we treat the Harvey Weinsteins of the exactly, world. Exactly, the real monsters. The like. monsters as opposed to people that's like, okay, you're seeing this, just don't date this guy. That's what, all. <laughs> what do you think about Louis C.K. and the jerking off in front of women stuff? I, that you, I don't know all the other details than just about being that. Weird. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know all the details about that. All I know is, and you can correct me if there's more facts to this because I'm, I'm, I don't know all the details for it, is that there were two women that went to a, a show of his and he said, come back in my hotel room and he masturbated in front of them, right? Yeah. Okay, now if I went, you know, I recently I've gone to more comedy shows, but if I went to, let's, yeah, if I went to a comedy show and somebody I thought was really cool was like, come back to my hotel room. Number one, I, I would be probably not want to go back to a hotel room with a man like that I don't know. Um, but let's say you choose to do that because you're a fan of this person. I definitely, um, you know. Well, can we stop there? First of all, would you say that the responsible thing to do in every case would be to not go anywhere privately with someone that you barely know? Responsible, but not everybody is as conservative as other people. So, of course, if somebody's famous and you're an up-and-comer in that field, you might think, wow, yeah, maybe. And you might not even be thinking because I'm a woman and they're a man. Maybe some really amazing famous journalist that's a guy asks you, hey, come back to my room. I'd love to talk to you after this event. You might say, yeah, what a great opportunity. Do so, I have to watch you wank? Right. <laughs> but let's say you get to that room and yeah. it becomes sexual or they bring out their genitals or, you know, there's things implied that make you think, oh, it's like that. Then you leave. And if you stay and you're consenting to this and consent can also be nonverbal, if you're sitting there and somebody's masturbating in front of you and you can leave, you should just get up and leave. Now, there are people that feel trauma that, like I said, are in shock and they feel like they can't get up and move. But that's also their own internal experience of trauma. Nobody's forcing you to do anything. If he locked the door and tied them up, that's different. Um, so is this a Harvey Weinstein situation? I don't think so. He didn't say, I'm going to hire you and... I'm not going to hire you unless you watch me masturbate. Um, so I do see this as a behavior that seems appearingly pretty consensual. Um, do I think he's terrible for that? No. Would I want to be alone in a room with him? Probably not. <laughs> um, but I don't think that these women were victims, just like Aziz Ansari. I like using that example. I actually like his book. I recommend it to clients because I think it has a lot of interesting points about dating in the digital age, the modern romance book. Um, but sounds like he maybe was just not a great date. Yeah. 
again, and I can tell you as a woman, a uh, the way that date went down, I've gone on so many dates like that. That's called dating. <laughs> like, so you have to know, know where to, where your own boundaries are and how to draw them. So could prob- a part problem in this culture be that people aren't educated about how to identify their own boundaries? That could be part of the problem. How Do you think articulate. that's a key thing is to kind of almost of sit down and figure out where am I willing to go? Where am I not? Know yes, those boundaries. Absolutely. I think everybody should do that. I do that with clients. Well, okay, where are your boundaries? Even as a guy, what this culture has taught you is you need to make sure that people are consent- consenting to everything you're doing. When you're going on a date, even if you think you're doing the right thing, you got to protect yourself even more now. And part of that is being extra cautious, extra verbal as a responsibility to yourself because now you're in a culture where people be might be more hypersensitive. You could be accused of something you didn't do and that could hurt your career or your life. So you have to be more responsible for yourself because of the culture we're in. But that's not a bad thing either. So if everybody's a little more aware, that's not bad. It's just all these people in these situations have to set these examples that are so muddy. It's not all black and white and everything really needs to be looked at a little bit more. And you know, you always have to consider, you know what, you weren't there. You don't know what happened with all of these situations. So... Yeah. You're a wise you're a wise woman, Amy. I want to ask you finally, as we okay. approach the final straight, um, how has the modeling world not been exposed more in all this thing? Like I think it has who's... to an extent. There's been accusations of, you know, the guy who runs guests and there's accusations all over the place right now. Um I'm not in that world as much and I wasn't really like a fashion model because I'm not tall. So you didn't see the dark side? I mean, of course there were situations like that. There were a few situations um that I had been around where if it was a different time and culture, there would have been more lawsuits. And, you know, there's um, definitely situations that I escaped where I didn't go into that hotel room. But if I did, it probably would have been an issue. Or, you know, I didn't agree to meet with this person one-on-one to talk about this potential job. Um, But those situations are always out there. Um, I'm sure there's things happening all the time. Also, a lot of people in that industry, especially the jobs I was working, everyone's checked a check. So if you think by speaking up that one job that's your weekly job that you're doing is going to go away, you can't afford that. A lot of it has to do with financial stability as well. So I think that people would speak up more if they felt safer with their financial situation. But being freelance as a model, as an artist, as a performer, whatever it might be, puts you in a different position. And you can breathe fire, right? I don't breathe it. I eat fire. You eat fire. Yeah, I haven't been eating a lot of fire lately because I've been, you know, working full time as a therapist. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I got a call for a job the other day and it was like 4.45 in the morning in Malibu on the beach. I'm like, no, I'm not <laughs> driving out there. Tell um, me about some fun gigs in that world that you've done. I did, fi- let's see, I did uh, I did a photo shoot with Dave Lombardo where I was eating fire next to him. I did fire in the Ramstein video for Mineland. Nice. Yeah. I love that video. That's oh, a Jonas Ackland video, right? The one so, where on the beach, it's like Beach Boys It was style. the day before my birthday a few years back, too. I'm like, okay, I can die happy now. It's like, they're one of my favorite bands, obviously, like 90s metal and industrial music. And um, yeah, I got to eat fire and hang out with Till all day, and he makes his own flamethrowers. So it was just really cool having those conversations and being part of a video by Jonas Ackerland, who I was already a fan of, and it was a great experience, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, What's same. your take on Hugh Hefner? Did you ever work mm-hmm. for Playboy? Yeah, did you ever yeah, meet I did. Hugh? A lot, yeah. I actually worked at the mansion a long time doing bottle service at their big events, which was a big part of how I paid for my classes. Wow. Um, so I've I seen, I've saw seen some a times lot. there. You know, honestly. Who were regulars? Who were regulars? Come on. Uh, oh, like, <laughs> it's really not that exciting. Like, um, when the mini-me who just passed away. Von uh, Troyer, yeah. Troyer yeah. was always there. And 
um i met crispin glover there and we're actually very good friends to this day so we met in this very like you know play you know playboy mansion but we actually have so much in common so he's a good friend um but people like that you know Corey feldman would be there you know it's really but the first time you go it's very novelty because you've seen it on tv and it's part of this big culture and then after that it's kind of like just feels like you're in a nightclub it's a bunch of you know hot chicks and skimpy outfits and i'm sure most guys hearing are like hearing this are like of course i'd want to keep going back but i'm like yeah all these girls in skimpy outfits and everyone's drinking and you know, it's just, gets a bit soulless pretty quick. Yeah, and that'll be like a DJ or something. And, you know, it's like that's not the kind of music I like. So it got old pretty fast, you know. And then you see the same dynamics of people, which is kind of the same things that go on in L.A. in general. So it gets old pretty fast. But they do have monkeys. My good girlfriend is actually, she's a super hot babe. And she also is an animal handler. And she's the animal handler still at the property. She's a monkey handler. Amazing. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, the, the, he was always really nice, but he was elderly. Even when I was, even 10 years ago, he would come out, he'd be friendly, and then he'd go back inside. So he wasn't really around that much. He was I, friendly. I noticed a real split in reaction to his passing um, between oh, yeah. super, like, I'm going to oh, use the speech bubble. Oh, he's a misogynist. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. this and that and the other thing. But I'll tell you, I have friends that dated him. We'll I just wait one was, second. We'll just wait oh, for these sirens to yeah, pass sirens by. Yeah, sirens went by. Um, I have a girlfriend that's actually in a serious relationship with a metal musician that you know that I won't name on on this, but she was one of his seven girlfriends that he had when he had seven girlfriends. And I know people that have been sexual with him and his lady friends uh, or people that I know people that have worked for Hugh Hefner for a long time. And none of the situations that I've heard of are non-consensual. So even though from an outside perspective, outside of LA, it might sound so bizarre that these women would want to be with this 80-year-old guy and Got and to, he's got them chained up in the Playboy Mansion. Right. Like. They, there were rules, but it's also your choice. Okay, you can live here. You'll stay in this room. You have a curfew. You can do this. You can't do this. We'll lease you a car. Everything's leased, so you don't really take anything away from you or away with you. But in exchange, this is what the lifestyle is. Like, this is for you to agree to or not agree to. Nothing's a surprise. And for some women or some people, that is something that is important to them. So if you're willing to give up certain things in your life that other people might value, like you want to have a curfew as an adult. But were they allowed to have their own boyfriends outside of their relationship were, with you? There were the, was the it girlfriends and then there were people that lived in another house. So I think they were allowed to have their own relationships and things like that. If you were a girlfriend, I don't think you could. But if you agree to this arrangement, this is what you're sacrificing. This is what you're getting. Is this something you want to do? It's very clear. So if you choose to do that, this is what it is. So do I think well, he was a misogynist? No, oh, I just think he presented this is the situation I want take it or leave it and people took it he didn't force anybody into anything in fact there are a lot of things that he did as a human being that I absolutely respect not only were my interactions with him totally fine and they were minimal and just friendly but he actually is a huge donator to children of the night which is a nonprofit that um, donates or has it's a home that children live in that were sexually exploited so if they were victims of human trafficking or they were pimped out a lot of them are runaways that got pimped out um, this home provides them with a place to stay, education, and I was a therapist with them for some period of time. So it's a lot of their money was donated by Hugh Hefner. So people say he gets these women into prostitution. That's a choice. That's a cho if they're going down that slippery slope and that's one thing they did and then they ended up escorting, that's also a choice and it's an adult choice. There's a big difference between that and people exploiting children. So he actually donated a lot to this, this uh, the children of the night, which are which is great. And he actually is the reason there's a Hollywood sign. So he paid into a lot of restoration in Los Angeles as well for historic landmarks. So there's things he's done that I think are great. 
Um, I don't think he's the cause of anything specific. I think that we need to look at women that have made certain choices as their own choice. And that's it. They value the money uh, over autonomy. Okay, that's a choice. That's a choice that's prevalent in this culture more than other things. What a refreshing <laughs> and engaging and educational conversation, Amy. Well, thank um, you so much. I, we covered topic. I didn't think we were going to cover these kind of topics, so I'm excited. Yeah, I'm was, glad that we did. Great chatting. Was it all right for you? It was great for yeah? me, yeah. Is it nice? Is it weird for you to be on the other side? I mean, when, when you're in your sort of therapy sessions, are you interviewing in the same way or are no, you more, you're more like... I'm some interview style. I mean, some... It, it, it's different with every client that I work with. I don't talk as much. Um, so I'm doing more of the listening and kind of like guided interviewing sometimes if it's a new client or depending on the mo modality that I'm using. But um, I don't always talk about myself. So that then that aspect is different. In fact, with my clients, I don't give much information. It's just not relevant in the sessions that I'm working with. So um, I don't even talk about my cat, which is terrible because I love talking. Once in a while, I'll have a client like, I think I want to get a cat for companionship. And I'll be like, that's a great idea. You should definitely do that. And what's he called? Marquis? Marquis, yeah. Marquis de Chien. He's a cute little dude. He is very cute. Yeah, he's very cute. Well, congratulations as well on your recent engagement. Oh, thank you. I remember you. talking to you not all that long ago, and um, I was sort of having a go at Pokemon Go on Facebook and saying how pathetic <laughs> and what a waste of time it was. And you were like, yeah, I was on a date a while back, and some guy was just playing it at the table oh, on yeah, the date. That you was, remember that? One of my, I did like three dates on the Bumble app, and honestly, the other ones weren't terrible, but I... Went on a first date with this guy that played Pokemon Go on the date. On the date. He also popped his collar and he would talk about how his ta he has a matching tap tattoo with Diplo. So three strikes, you're out. Like those three And that's things. three right so there. Like, Gone. Get me out of here. But dating apps are really good to get out there for people that have a hard time meeting people in person. So you think, not how you, I met you, my partner. You think they are? Yes, I think there's a lot of benefit to it, but there's also a lot of cultural impact. This is a whole other interview. It is, we can isn't talk it? about part two but, uh, for another time. Part two. But I actually, yeah, Dating I met my apps. partner uh, at, a, real at an life. actual party through friends. Old school, yeah, analog. like old school. Like a, you know, we actually talked and had a conversation in real life. Well, yeah. I look forward to hopefully meeting him on Sunday. Yeah, you're going to come to your my, party. my goth pool party. That'll be my exit out of Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave a, a from good, yours to the airport. exit, right. That'll be great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find out more information about you, where should they go? Uh, you can go on my website, my Instagram or my Facebook, which is all at Dr. Amy Harwick, which is A-M-I-E-H-A-R-W-I-C-K. Um, so I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I've got a website, so you can go there. And you've Ask got a book questions. out, right? Which I've got a book. It's uh, The New Sex Bible for Women. came out a couple years ago. It's pretty much like a all-encompassing information about sexuality and covers a little bit of everything. It's written for women, but men could definitely benefit from it. So that's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Any major bookstore should have it. So go check it out. Right on. Mm -hmm. Thanks yeah. again. Thanks You're for welcome. a great talk. <laughs> Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 